0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, August 31st, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, and I'm going to begin this podcast by reading Homage to a Government by Philip Larkin. Next year, we are to bring all the soldiers home for lack of money, and it is all right. Places they guarded or kept orderly must guard themselves and keep themselves orderly. We want the money for ourselves at home instead of working, and this is all right. It's hard to say who wanted it to happen. By now, it's been decided nobody minds. The places are a long way off, not here, which is all right. And from what we hear, the soldiers there only made trouble happen. Next year, we shall be easier in our minds. Next year, we shall be living in a country that brought its soldiers home for lack of money, The statues will be standing in the same tree-muffled squares and look nearly the same. Our children will not know it's a different country. All we can hope to leave them now is money. Homage to a Government by Philip Larkin, written in 1969. With me today, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, in one parallel that I don't think anybody seems to have noted, uh, the fact that the last American uh, military officer left Afghanistan yesterday. Uh, yesterday was, of course, the 30th of August, and of course, the day that we, the helicopter pulled off the roof of the embassy in Saigon, was the 30th of April so uh even though uh joe biden did not get his uh 20th anniversary celebration of 911 by pulling out of the uh, pulling out of afghanistan he has gotten some kind of a uh uh monthly celebration by somehow pulling off on the same uh le- you know and date uh not specific month day and date but the same day of the month as we did from Saigon, um, I, I don't even really know where 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 to begin or or what to say. That's why I started with the Philip Larkin poem, which of course was really about uh, imperialism um, but uh, reflects the idea of what it might mean for a country to uh, no longer consider. Uh, the value of its uh, example and its presence uh, elsewhere uh, in the world and the notion that what it really needs to do is, you know, focus solipsistically on it, on itself.
1: Well, and can I just say that the, the juxtaposition in that poem of the the statues and tree-muffled squares, he's, he's harking back to a time when actually honor meant erecting... Um, statues to the people who, who shepherded and, and kept safe a, a nation and its honor. And then that's why I think he ends the poem by saying We've, we're going to leave our kids money. So we'll leave them some money because here we are all focusing on what we need. And honestly, not to pivot exactly to, to uh, practical politics today, but that is basically the strategy and argument that the Biden administration will now make in the in the coming weeks. Let's focus on ourselves. Let's focus on our domestic agenda. Let's hope Americans forget the dishonor.
2: Um, one of the genius things about that poem is that he, in a sense, he doesn't exactly savage anyone who wants the soldiers to come home. You know, he says, you know, it's, it's hard to say who wanted it to happen. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we want, we, everyone sort of just is okay with it. Um, yet he's clearly devastating about what it means um i think that's that is exactly mirrored in what we see today um it's hard to say uh, who wanted it to happen um that sort of feels very much like uh reading uh twitter uh today uh where everyone now either pretends they wanted it to happen because they're supporting biden no matter what um or they um sort of didn't want it to happen but it shouldn't have happened this way there's this the the blame spreading uh, we will have a lot of time to talk about how how 20 years led to this not just what we've witnessed these past few weeks
3: right no it it is it is now a result of the actions and policies pursued by the people who didn't want this to happen that is responsible for it according to the people who did want this to happen which is by which
0: which i think you need to specify you're talking about the nature of the pullout and the chaos in which afghanistan has been left not the
3: and not the entirety
0: of the not the entirety of the policy
3: and those who want to take a detached, chin-stroking, 30,000-foot perspective on our national humiliation and disgrace, which is by all accounts ongoing. The notion here that the mission in Afghanistan is over is fatuous and unsupported even by those who are presiding over it. The mission is not over, not at least if Joe Biden meant a, 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 a bit of what he said last week when he talked about going after ISIS and executing missions against ISIS. If we are to see to our responsibilities to uh, interject, to disrupt, to deter terrorist attacks in the AFPAC region, then the mission is not over. If we are to see to the American civilians we now admit we left behind, to say nothing of the legal permanent residents and visa holders and visa eligible applicants in the tens of thousands who we say we are still seeing to and we're so deeply concerned for, then the mission is not over. And if it pre- manifests in anything other than ransoms, then it will manifest in raids and so, uh, special forces raids. Which, by the way, the United uh, Kingdom has basically committed to executing. The mission is not over; it is ongoing. These people are taking refuge—a uh, very comforting refuge—in the idea that this this is all behind us now. And like the poem, you know, we can focus we can focus on uh, more quotidian affairs at home. Nonsense. Nonsense.
2: And but, but also just the um, the the repeated refrain "It's all right" in the poem makes me think of. Um, well, this was always going to be messy, but it's the right thing. You know, it's it's right. it's all right. It's not. Well, it's OK if it's not great. It's all right, though.
1: Well, this was to um, be expected. Remember, yeah, that was the mess. This right. was to be expected. This was to be expected. And honestly, the American people now need to ask themselves about Biden's domestic agenda. Why would you believe a word this administration says? It made right. promises that it has not kept over and over again to Americans to say nothing of allies. It's, it's, I mean, which is one point i'm
2: believing them this is a point that jonah Goldberg made on twitter um why would you believe the number that they put on how many americans are left behind
3: his point is why would you not qualify the number not believe it why would you not qualify it as this is what the administration says this is what the pentagon says we have no independent information to verify that that sort of journalistic best practice has just gone out the window
0: well i i also want to quote in terms of the um utter incoherence uh which I think is just sort of um, improvisatory, you know. It, it, it's uh, it's it's kind of Marx Brothers Chico saying whatever he has to say to get to the next sentence, uh, which is the genius of the Chico Marx um, yeah, improvisations. Um, that uh, Tony Blinken, yesterday, the Secretary of State, said uh, that the departure from Afghanistan was. Uh, the beginning of quote a new chapter of America's engagement with Afghanistan. It's one in which we will lead with our diplomacy, right? That sounds nice, right? Thirty seconds later, he said, uh, "We don't have any diplomats in Afghanistan. Even <laughs> we've pulled everybody out of Afghanistan." So how are we leading with our diplomacy? We're leading from behind,
1: John. We're leading from behind. (laughs) We're
0: leading leading from over the horizon, apparently, because that's now our our favorite new phrase, right? Don't worry. We can take care of this with our over-the-horizon capability. Our over-the-horizon capability. So, you know, according to basically people who sort of understand these calculations we have lost something like 90 percent of our capability in terms of you know intelligence knowing where things are knowing where people are knowing who the players are and all of that but through through the pullout just as we've lost this astounding amount of materiel and talk about something else that i don't know that we can trust we have uh kirby the um Pentagon spokesman saying, "Don't worry, all of that American uh, military material uh, that we left behind doesn't work. <laughs> it's broken.
2: It's been demilitarized. It's broken. So.
0: It's been demilitarized. So don't worry about it." And then, as um, as Trey Yinks, uh, the uh, who's a Fox News uh, correspondent, puts it. Twenty-seven Humvees were demilitarized before American forces left Kabul, according to General McKenzie. Twenty-two thousand one hundred and seventy-four Humvees were given to Afghan security forces over the course of the war. Those vehicles are now under the control of the Taliban. So um, let's not be foolish about what this means. We have not only left and left people behind, but we have left material behind that will make it easier for the Taliban to do things like, oh, I don't know, crush ISIS-K and kill people at will and make sure that others don't come back to do to them what the Taliban, what we did to the Taliban.
1: Can I, can I just to that to your point about our lack of intelligence and in this the, the the ridiculous vacuous statement that we're going to lead with our diplomacy? There was a perfect example of that this week. We we attempted to use you know unmanned drones to take out an ISIS K uh, cell, I guess, and ended up slaughtering a bunch of civilians, including children, um, on at the very same time. Um, Bin Laden's former security chief rolled in in, in, in like a, a caravan of, of Escalades into a region of Afghanistan and they, people were posting all about on social media. Why aren't we taking that guy out? Why didn't we know about that? Like he clearly was was making a triumphant return to uh, land that he'd been driven from uh, years ago.
3: The um, <clears throat> Yeah, the Taliban wasn't supposed to be able to use any of this equipment, right? We're, we've now seen multiple videos of Taliban fighters flying Black Hawk helicopters, one very infamous one in which uh, there appears to be a figure dangling from beneath it from several feet up, uh, a hanging and a revenge killing. We're going to get many more of these videos. Um, The best case scenario from the perspective of this White House now has to be that intra-terrorist politics are going to result in a bloodbath in Kabul, which will keep everybody busy in Kabul and the surrounding provinces, that, that consigning the Afghans to a brutal civil war um, will somehow absolve us of our responsibilities to interdict and disrupt terrorist uh, events. But the amount of Americans that are stranded there is going to preclude this. The Taliban had an American hostage in their custody that they were ransoming while we were depending on them for our security. That's only one American hostage, and he made headlines all over the place. He was, the president was asked about him, the Pentagon was asked about him. It was, something that, was you know, uh, something that tied our hands as policymakers in Washington. And now there are hundreds of potential applicants for this sort of thing. To the extent we know anything about what they're experiencing now, it is that they are hiding in holes, Is that they are moving at night from house to house to evade detection. They are menaced profoundly in the notion that we won't hear anything about their ordeal, seems to me fanciful, even if it is even if it is the desire, a very sordid partisan desire on the press to let this news cycle pass. They weren't able to do that during the evacuation, and they're not going to be able to do it now when the story gets much, much worse.
0: Uh, I want to um, tell you guys, I'm sure you've read this, but if you haven't, the story of um, Mark Schmitz, uh, whose son Jared was one of the 13... Uh, killed uh, in the terrorist bombing uh, in Kabul last week. Um, and he uh, had a meeting with Biden uh, at Dover Air Force Base as the as the uh, bodies were being returned to the United States. He's a Trump voter. He did not vote for Biden. Um, and uh, according to Matt Weiser's story in the Washington Post, he had told a military officer the night before that he wasn't much interested in speaking to a president he did not vote for, one whose execution of the Afghan pullout he disdains, and one he now blames for the death of his 20-year-old son, Jared. But overnight, Schmidt changed his mind. So on that dreary morning, he and his ex-wife were approached by Biden after he talked to all the other families. By his own account, Schmidt glared hard at the president, so Biden spent more time looking at his ex-wife repeatedly invoking his own son, Bo, who died six years ago. Schmitz did not want to hear about Bo. He wanted to talk about Jared. Eventually, the parents took out a photo to show to Biden. I said, don't you ever forget that name. Don't you ever forget that face. Don't you ever forget the names of the other 12, Schmitz said, and take some time to learn their stories. Biden did not seem to like that, Schmitz recalled, and he bristled offering a blunt response. I do know their stories. Um, I'm struck by this because it goes again to the idea that the pullout from Afghanistan is a mark and a sign of Biden's great humanity, or his great understanding of the sacrifices of military families or things like that now you cannot blame biden for an isis-k terror bomb that's not right he didn't do it wants every american soldier marine serviceman to remain alive and thrive and live a wonderful life uh he What he did was engineer this pullout. One of the consequences of which was this terrorist bombing, which emerged from the chaos in Kabul, the scenes outside the airport, and the opportunity that was presented not only to the Taliban, but to others to um, humiliate the United States, to terrorize the United States, and to do all of that. That is something for which he is responsible, just as one, just as there are people who are going to give him credit for making the tough decisions to pull out, to make, making the tough choice and, you know, facing the generals down and facing the neocons down and facing down 20 years of a consensus that was foolish and all of that. If he is to get credit for that, he needs to stand there when Mark Schmitz looks at him and says, I want you to know their stories and say, I will never forget Jared Schmitz. That is not what he said. He said, go for yourself.
1: Well, and can I also add the other... That's
0: what he said. I'm sorry to use that language. But if this exchange happened, as Mark Schmitz said it happened, he looked at a grieving father and told him to go f- Himself. But But
1: it's worse because there's, well, it's not worse. There, there's more detail that actually uh, that makes this even a, a more terrible uh, behavior on the part of our president because other folks who were there said that he consistently brought up his son's death. And I am sick and tired of Joe Biden trying to steal the valor of genuine gold star families in order to gain sympathy for himself and his administration when he should be taking, as you say, John, responsibility for his policy choices that led to the deaths of active service military. His son's death is an obvious tragedy. I am not trying to take away from that, but he should stop equating his son's service with the death in active duty of these soldiers. It is offensive. And several other family members mentioned that they said, we don't want to hear about your son's cancer death. We are talking about active duty military who were killed in the line of service, defending our nation's interests. And he is not behaving appropriately towards those families.
2: Um, another thing on this point, i've I've now seen, I think, three different clips of Biden in different settings describing grief as a a, a, a black hole uh, sucking at the center of your chest. Um, it, it's It's fine, I believe him. When you use that, when you go to the same sort of line again and again, and it becomes this canned description, of grief at a moment of real active grief for other people it's really cheap and and it and it 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 rings so hollow
0: i mean the problem with it not to go totally off on this tangent is everybody has a tragedy in their family everybody on earth has a tragedy in their family a relative Who died too young uh, you know under tragic circumstances um you know untimely ripped from the earth um and and it's one of the things that uh does give us humanity and should give us a sense of connection to the grief and loss of others and all of that um but uh and it is and biden's story is a terrible story, not because he lost one child, but because he lost two. He lost a baby in a car crash and a wife in a car crash. And then he lost his son to cancer 40 years after that. And that is a terrible, terrible thing. But it is the totality of Biden's loss that makes him unique, not having lost a son to cancer at the age of 46. I mean, I wish that it were the case that that was so uniquely tragic that you know he is he could pre- present a face of survival and and the ability to move on uh, that is uh, you know unique and therefore you know incredibly inspiring to people, but that's not right. It's it's not that's not as I said that it, it's his total life experience and and he does use it. He has used it in speeches and stuff, and it was very affecting, and it is affecting that he was able to. Make a life for himself after his uh, after his first wife was was killed in the car crash along with their daughter, um, and then he suffered the second blow and all of that. But um, but it's not a story of war, and it's not a story of sacrifice. Actually, it's not about sacrifice. Then everybody who loses a family member is somehow somebody who deserves to be considered a hero be- because of their sacrifice, and I just don't think that's. That's right. That 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 defines heroism and sacrifice. Down. It removes what is um, a special, extraordinary, uniquely tragic, and soul and soul inspiring about the losses of people who are doing things to help others and to serve
1: their country. Did you notice? in a lot of the the very moving stories about the, some of the soldiers who lost their lives at the bombing. Almost all of their friends and family said, you know what, they were doing exactly what they wanted to do. They were exactly where they wanted to be. They had a notion of service that took them across the world to protect people they had never met because they are Marines, because they are soldiers. And that's, I think, the part where, where um, the, the juxtaposition of, of these people who truly define the best of America because they serve in that way and risk their lives for others Compared to the very worst of America, which is this kind of obnoxious um, foreign policy uh, proposals that that Biden just pig-headedly pushed forward despite not listening to advice and not listening to others, that's another thing that I think drives these families absolutely Berserk is, is, is having this person not only, not just be there and be the figurehead that he should be at that moment and bring comfort to them, but to still make it about himself and his policies. That stubbornness, that that absolute inability, that's not empathy. And that's why I get in arguments with people all the time because I'm constantly saying, I'm not sure Joe Biden is as empathetic as you think. There are just, there are moments where as in a professional capacity as president, he has a duty to perform a certain service and he is neglecting that duty. And he did it at, at and- the air base, air base in Dover. And it can be done by people who have not suffered loss. You
0: know, being a great eulogist or delivering the kind of um, uh, speech or talk or whatever that the country needs to hear in the wake of tragedy does not, in fact, require a total personal experience of that tragedy. It requires a capacious, sympathetic imagination uh that all of us are supposed to have and that that's one of the purposes of a liberal education or something like that you know it, it's that it's that that's the thing it's not oh i know what you're going through because i've been through it myself that's the easiest i mean it's not easy i that, that's the wrong way to put it but it's the you know that is not what you know the, if you had to be that then Reagan delivering the pitch perfect remarks, uh, you know, upon the explosion of the Challenger, or you know, or remarks on the, you know, on the 40th anniversary of the invasion of D-Day. What do you know about any of that? He'd never been on the Challenger, you know. He hadn't. He didn't. He didn't. He wasn't on Omaha Beach. He wasn't at Plunderock, you know. Uh, But that doesn't matter. And it's somehow a kind of substitution for that that biden keeps defaulting to uh, as a way of uh, avoiding and I, I think as you guys say like yeah I'm go ahead sorry i'm sorry. interrupting you but please
3: this is very uncharitable of me but i'm in a very uncharitable mood this morning so i'll um give voice to it is this not a bad actor's way of playing to the scene because he doesn't feel emotion for afghanistan he does not feel sadness For the loss of Afghanistan. He's happy about this. He's wanted this for a decade and a half. He's wanted this, and he finally got it. We have no indication that there was any lack of resolve when everything started going real bad. 700 troops didn't cut it, and we had to perform outrageous, ridiculous, failed contingencies. We have no indication that there was any change of heart here because his heart isn't in it. This is what he wanted. So in order to channel the kind of empathy that is his brand he has to go back to a moment that invokes that kind of emotion for him
0: well i mean it reminds me in some ways let me just quickly it reminds me of obama after benghazi if you think about it because it seemed to me the minute that benghazi happened that obama who was then locked in what appeared to be a sort of dead even race with with Mitt romney had won the election of of 2012 because the thing for him to say is They struck our diplomats. We will not have this. We will hunt them to the ends of the earth. They will be sorry they took on the United States, right? And it was like a gimme, and Romney would have to say, uh, the president said exactly the right thing, and then he would have been totally kind of silenced for a week. Obama would have established himself as the leader, and, and instead, Obama didn't want to do that because he had chosen a different plot line to emphasize in the 2012 campaign, which is that he had ended, he had won the war on terror. They had won the war on terror, not that it was ongoing. And he would have had to interrupt that narrative for this situational change in language. And then you have to wonder, why didn't he do that? Well, maybe it's because he didn't want to prosecute the war on terror. He didn't want to strike back against... Uh, the people who had done this in Benghazi because he wanted to focus on something else and that's exactly like Biden now. Although, of course, Biden really wants the credit for being a war ender. But again, so did Clinton, so did Obama, right? He wanted to say,
2: I killed bin Laden, now let's move on. Abe, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Well, I was just going to be as uncharitable as Noah was uh, in thinking about it. I'll I'll just say it. Uh, Joe Biden has turned his personal grief into a tick it started on the campaign trail um and it has extended ad nauseum to cover uh his debacle in afghanistan he does there was a time when he when he first mentioned um his son's death uh, i don't know last week uh in response to um the, the 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 marines who were killed i had i had said on the podcast i think he might have been linking his son's brain cancer to his service. Uh, and he was um, a listener sent me a tweet of the transcript and Biden said something like uh, when he came back uh, from Iraq, like so many who had come back from Iraq, uh, he, he had you know succumbed to a fatal brain cancer. Now, I don't know if Biden believes that there's a link between his uh, son having served and getting brain cancer, or if he's, trying to establish this bridge that puts him that, you know, plausibly in his mind, in the camp of um, those uh, parents who had, who have lost uh, their, their, their kids in service. Um, um, If it's the latter, if, if he's, if he's sort of, you know, trying to uh, paint himself implausibly in that, in that role, I think that's quite disgusting.
0: Well, I mean, I, I, look, if he genuinely believes it, I right? Don't know, and right. there is genuine longitudinal science that suggests that there is this. Uh, you know, causal link. Then that's a whole different story. Well, then he should do something about he it. He's the president.
1: Have. Yeah, he yeah, should. He should right. delegate that to someone in yeah. Veterans Affairs to actively pursue that link. That's not what he's doing. He's he's talking about the. I, I'm with Noah. He's talking about the reason his empathy seems to feel really hollow this time around is that or his performance of it. I should say is that he's act. These are those Marines were collateral damage to the policy, and there's a weird. That's where the stubbornness. Like I think. Policy wise, that's what he sees them as. Now, maybe as a human being, obviously, he's, he's very, as you say, John, he doesn't want soldiers to die. No decent person would. But it's it's there's a weird disconnect between what we're constantly being told he feels and what he actually says and does.
0: Um, so the political consequences here are, are, are unknowable. Uh, there's another person in American politics who is facing political consequences that we will know soon enough. That's Gavin Newsom in California. And our friend Dan Senor has done a fantastic podcast, his post Corona podcast, which you can subscribe to on Apple, Google play stitcher, wherever post Corona series of interviews with people talking about what life will be like uh, after Corona. Um, Dan interviews Mike Murphy, who I said yesterday was the, best talker in American politics um, and uh, the man who uh, got helped get Arnold Schwarzenegger elected in the last recall election in 2003. And uh, he and uh, Dan analyze uh, the Gavin Newsom recall and what the uh, chances are and the possibilities are for this recall To succeed, Uh, it is a great conversation. It's very provocative. It's really funny, and you should go listen to it and profit from it. That's Dan Sinor's post-Corona podcast with Mike Murphy. Uh, Go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, download it, listen, and uh, and you will thank me for that. Um, Let's go to some of the uh, as as the as the weeks pass. Uh, the conversation around this departure and the discussion of who's responsible and all that has been getting more sophisticated and more layered and more interesting in some ways. And I want to talk about Ross Douthat's column today in the New York Times. If you haven't read it, you should go do so because it Ross, who is you know one of the best columnists in America uses his column uh, in an uncharacteristically angry tone to say he never thought that he could be a cynical, that he thought he's really not a cynical person, but um, uh, he starts by saying, a month ago, I thought I was a cynic about our 20-year war in Afghanistan today after watching our stumbling withdrawal and the swift collapse of practically everything we fought for. My main feeling is I wasn't cynical enough. And then he goes on to say that he can't believe everybody who is talking about this is hypocritical or uh, uh, unjust or is um, uh, intellectual is, is is making intellectually indefensible cases um, that uh, that 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 deserve to be named shamed and they deserve to be sort of extirpated from. From public life, uh, that kind of includes us, though. Uh, his real targets uh, are, he says. Um, Here is what says: uh, all these arguments. I'm not going to get into what those are, are connected to a set of moods that flourished after 9-11, a mix of cable news-encouraged overconfidence in American military capacities, naive World War II nostalgia, and crusading humanitarianism in its liberal and neoconservative forms. Like most Americans... I shared in those mood once after so many years of failure, I cannot imagine indulging in them now, but it's clear from the past few weeks that they retain an intense subterranean appeal in the American elite. Thus, you have generals and grand strategists who presided over quagmire, folly, and defeat, fanning out across the television networks and opinions pages to champion another 20 years in Afghanistan. You have the return of the media's liberal hawks and centrist Pentagon stenographers, unchastened by their own credulous contributions to the retreat of American power over the past 20 years. And you have Republicans who postured as cold-eyed realists in the Trump presidency suddenly turning back into eager crusaders, excited to own the Biden Democrats and relive the brief post-9-11 period when the mainstream media treated their party with deference rather than... Contempt again, Biden deserves plenty of criticism, but like the Trump administration in its wiser moments, he is trying to disentangle America from a set of failed policies that many of his loudest critics long supported. So, um, I, I bring this up only to say that I think this is probably going to be the perspective that sticks to some extent, in other words, saying. Uh, among among the liberal elite that is struggling to figure out what to say about this, that will not mire them with us in a neoconservative quagmire, uh, to say, look, this is all hopeless. 10 years ago, it was clear that it was hopeless and we should have extricated ourselves then and the generals and everybody wouldn't let us and now finally Biden you know has ripped off the band-aid and yeah it's terrible it's terrible and it's bungled and he did a bad job but he ripped off the band-aid at least and now all of these people who own different aspects of why everything is so terrible liberal hawks uh who you know sort of said I don't know you know quite who he's referring to exactly but sort of liberal hawks and neoconservatives who had world war 1 fantasies and this and that and everybody who was going out there saying this could have been done differently you know um uh you know basically is uh is is should not be listened to and and is a person of 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 no credibility um so i think this is going to stick um What's interesting to me is how it fails to deal with the very simple fact of the what happened here, which is that it was a choice. We were not driven out of Afghanistan. We did not lose battles that required us ever, by the way. We did not lose battles that required us to pull out of Afghanistan. Even 10 years ago, we did not lose battles. We were in a stalemate. So there was an idea for a surge that would alter the dynamic between us and the Taliban. We did not lose battles. We did not We did not have to leave Afghanistan. So he deals with this at one point when he says uh, that, oh, it's very easy for people like me to say this, right? The argument, for instance, that the situation in Afghanistan was reasonably stable and the war's death toll negligible, before the Trump administration started moving toward withdrawal. In fact, only U.S. casualties were low, while Afghan military and civilian casualties were nearing 15,000 annually, and the Taliban were clearly gaining ground. That suggests we would have needed periodic surges of U.S. forces and periodic spikes in U.S. deaths to prevent a slow-motion version of what's happening quickly as we've left. Okay. This is where everything that he is saying falls apart, because only us casualties were low raises the question of w- what our opportunity cost was in leaving which was low we didn't we were not going to pay a huge price by staying because our casualties were low afghan casualties were high our casualties were low how does that argue against our staying is it are we looking to pacify afghanistan because if he thinks that fifteen thousand, if he thinks the Pat Taliban aren't going to kill fifteen thousand people this year in their efforts to re- reimpose their benighted totalitarian reactionary horror, you know he's delusional. Uh, I just,
2: I have a quick point because I suspect Noah has a a, a a longer one, but I think something else that that um, completely um, undermines Ross's argument, and I still think it is the best argument. Um, Uh, against us, against, against what we believe in. But I think um, what he absolutely thoroughly ignores is the good that was done and was being done in Afghanistan, including what it got us, what the United States gained from being there. He doesn't actually deal with that. Um, We kept the Taliban out of power, which in turn kept terrorist organizations like al-Qaeda from collecting their planning attacks on us and our friends there and other and other terrorist groups. We did it for a relatively low cost as as things ended up.
0: Okay, so before you go, Noah, I'm just going to make the final point that he makes since people probably haven't haven't read the piece yet. Okay. On the Or the argument that a permanent mission in Afghanistan could come to resemble in some way our long-term presence in Germany or South Korea. He calls it a delusional historical analogy before the collapse of the Kabul government and a completely ludicrous one now. Okay, he's right because, you know, we have 28,000 guys in North Korea and we had 2,500 in Afghanistan. So it's a ludicrous comparison because it's almost 70 years after the end of the war in Korea – we have 10 times the number of men in Korea that we had in Afghanistan and the status quo was holding. Noah,
3: please. Sure. Um, If this is the highest quality argument against our position, then they've made our lives quite easy. Um, As you said, the notion here that Afghan casualties uh, are somehow indicative of our own failure uh, would indict every forward operating position we currently man and are uh, using to execute strikes on Terrorists, terrorist organizations who want to export terrorism to the United States and our allies. It would indict our presence in Iraq, would indict our presence in Somalia, would indict our presence in Chad and Mali. Are those places that uh, Ross Douthat wants to disengage from? Quite possibly. But if he's bold enough to say as much, he hasn't been yet. Um, another thing that he says in this column is that um, because, you know, after the Mujahideen in the United States uh, executed operations, covert operations that led to the Soviet Union to withdraw, in 1989 um that the government held up for for quite some time which is indicative of how the soviet union and its dotage somehow managed to build a nation state that was more enduring than our nation build rather that uh, build a state that was more enduring than anything the united states could put together that is frankly insane a historical self-hating nonsense the notion that we didn't build up a civil society that was anything remotely like what the soviet union did is insane we've exported afghans who are Westernized, intelligent, shockingly great contributors to the societies that they've helped build outside their country and in their own country, to say nothing of the fact that the Soviet government, the puppet state in Afghanistan, all but dissolved in 1991. Their president went into hiding in a United Nations compound in Kabul, where he remained until he was dragged out of there, disemboweled and hung from a lamppost. Um, and in the interim, there was a lot of fighting that was going on in the provinces between an insurgent organization that had no governing platform, which doesn't remotely parallel this organization, which was the governing entity for what eight years prior to the American invasion in 2001. They had pre-existing relationships with these people. To make this comparison is so negligent, so shockingly ahistorical. That it frankly invalidates much of the rest of the column, which I do believe, as I said previously, masks a grander policy prescription, which is quite more insane, which is the abandonment entirely of America's responsibility to preserve its interests and its citizen sovereignty abroad against terrorists who want to kill you.
0: Bob Kagan's piece in the Washington Post we talked about yesterday makes one simple salient point that Ross Douthat cannot answer and that this line cannot answer, which is... It has been 20 years. We are two weeks shy of 20 years, and there has not been another major terrorist attack on American soil. That is the justification for the mission in Afghanistan, period. Period. Can you imagine had we somehow left in 2010 and the Taliban hadn't had another 20 years to degrade, whatever it was, can you imagine that the government in Kabul would have stood up and that there wouldn't be a recon, that ISIS wouldn't have reconstituted itself? There wouldn't have been ISIS in Afghanistan instead of in Syria and in Iraq? I mean, it's not as though the jihadist temptation has gone away, number one. And number two, it's not as though all it needs is some fertile field to plow. The fact that we are in Afghanistan prevented Afghanistan. From becoming ISIS avant ISIS, or providing two Isises as opposed to one in 2013 2014, that is the simple fact of the matter. When you get to the question of U.S. interests, and if you want to then go into the whole argument about whether or not America was delusional about you know exporting democracy and all of that. I'm very happy to have that conversation. One of the things that has been driving me absolutely bananas, and that drove me bananas when George W. Bush gave his second inaugural in 2005, with this messianic vision of a of of of, of democratic liberalism spreading its face across the world in the twenty-first century, which may yet happen. This is only 2021. There are 80 years to go yet, but was I never went into this or people that I know didn't go into this thinking that, you know, Muslim countries were fertile fields for the for the installation of liberal democracy. Like I was a a student of Bernard Lewis. You know, I'm not a student of Michael Gerson. I don't go in around thinking that w- one of the weird things that happened in Afghanistan was that there was this election in 2002 and it went wildly better than anybody ever could possibly have anticipated. Everybody remember this with the purple fingerprints, the purple you had, you had the the had to you know have your fingerprint in purple and people held up their fingers and the entire country participated in this wildly successful election. That was a surprise. Nobody was like, oh, you know, we're going to go in there and then we're going to have this wonderful election. There's going to be a wonderful democracy functioning in Afghanistan. The truth is that the dem- democratizing project in Afghanistan went better than anybody could have anticipated. But it was not the purpose of it. It was it not why ends. we went there and it's not wasn't the reason we were there now. And being good with uh, Ghani and President Ghani and his relation with us, this is all about preventing worse things from happening – that's no, what you never. do when you're a superpower. A lot of what you're doing is putting corks in dams or slapping up stuff, you know, sloppily to make sure that the that the roof doesn't collapse. And that's what we were doing in Afghanistan. And that's why we were in Afghanistan after the Taliban fell and after we rousted Al-Qaeda and – or, you know, Obama went into his – Oh, uh, uh, Obama, I'm so sorry. Bin Laden went into his hidey hole.
3: It is always – in democracy promotion and the successes, notably Germany, Japan and South Korea, are incidental. It's a secondary consequence of the pursuit of a mission that the American isolationist right never gives us credit for, which is the pursuit of our immediate national interests. We why were we in Afghanistan or why were we in um, Germany to to deter the Soviet Union from attacking Europe? And it was not a a consequence-free occupation in the 40s. Why were we in South Korea? To deter North Korea. Not to promote democracy. The thing was a military dictatorship until the 70s. 80s, until the 80s. The 80s had nothing to do with democracy promotion. It just sort of happened along the way. That might have happened in Afghanistan. We will never know now. But it is always the pursuit of immediate American national interests, the defense of those interests and the protection of American citizens that, that are the, those are the missions that we're executing. Democracy promotion is always secondary to them. And the failure of democracy promotion, it does not indict the mission, it never has. And the American isolationist right and their colleagues on the left who have the a mirror image, the same views, never always use that to indict the mission when they, because they can't indict the mission directly. Because the American people would reject it. So they indict something that is incidental to it, a secondary consequence of it, in order to make a case that they can't make honestly.
0: Look, the promotion of democracy promotion has three or four different levels, okay? Uh, Look, Fareed Zakaria made this point 20 years ago, and it's a kind of, it's it's, more than 20 years ago, and it's kind of in some ways, a stupid point. I hate to put it this way, but it's kind of, which is like, elections are not democracy. And that is right. Elections are not democracy. They have elections in totalitarian countries and authoritarian countries. The fact of an election, even an election, by the way, that isn't rigged, is not democracy, right? Or Republican democracy, as we consider it. But it's an element without which you cannot have it. So you start there... And then the question is, if it kind of goes well, you kind of see what happens after that and what happens after that and what happens after that. And, you know, if we go to, we would not want to live under Afghanistan's regime and with the and we would not want to live under Iraq's regime and we would not want that for ourselves. But the question is, what would they be had we not been there and would the circumstances under which they live, you don't know because you can't run a counterfactual, you can only th- you know, think it through, what would life be like there had we never been there, right? The issue with Iraq and the continuing controversy over Iraq was whether the sacrifice was worth it to us all the cost, all the debt, and the fact that we didn't find the weapons of mass destruction. That is not what we're talking about in Afghanistan. I'm sorry, because the issue in Afghanistan is it's very easy to say what Afghanistan did for us. And it's also very easy to say we were continuing to do what we were doing in order to make sure that those gains remained present with as light a footprint
2: as possible. That's the thing. People forget or have forgotten what it's like in the world when a terrorist organization is doing well uh, and is gaining strength. Um, there are copycat groups and affiliated affiliated groups that pop up all over the planet. Uh, and just individuals, yeah, in, in, individuals,
3: so individuals. We forgot their all success about that.
2: and strength inspire all sorts of horrors. Um, I don't know that we've seen much of that in the past few years, actually. Right. And I hate to say it, I'd be shocked if we don't start seeing it again. Okay,
0: here's here's the thing. Let's talk about how these things can develop. Syria uses chemical weapons. Obama says, that's the red line, Syria uses chemical weapons, and then he blinks, right? And he doesn't do anything about it. And ISIS forms takes over territory, takes over half of Iraq, and then there is a colossal refugee crisis that destabilizes Europe and is the harbinger of the populist revolution, not only in Europe, but in the United States. All of which comes from a... I mean, it it springs from a kind of weird, simple root, which was, we said you can't use chemical weapons... Assad used chemical weapons. Obama didn't act.
3: Oh, you forgot something. Okay, He also invited Russia into the country to mediate that conflict and remove all chemical weapons in 2013, which they subsequently said they did, they hadn't. Our dependence on Russia and Syria and for the negotiations of the Iran deal subsequently made Moscow bold enough to invade and annex territory in Europe. Okay, so so there's another point. So,
0: So my point here is that these... Things have consequences that do hit us. I mean, if you hate Trump and you think Trump is the worst thing that ever happened, Trump may not happen if Obama goes into Syria. I'm not joking about this. Like the the fact that um, that immigration became this obsessive issue in the United States as it, it had been gaining, it was growing. I'm not saying that. This didn't have a, a domestic route. It did. It had twenty years of a domestic route. But in 2015, we saw Germany and you know the the entire EU overrun with millions of refugees, and they didn't know what to do about it. They had no clue how to handle it. and and Trump comes along to make the case. That a you know, that uh, the liberal system that allows this kind of chaos uh, is destructive of our, of our order, and it gives you know, again, if you're like a liberal who doesn't like you want Biden to stay in Afghanistan. I mean, if I were going to say the most the easiest to predict proxima, Quad, this is a crazy thing I'm about to say, and you could put it down, it's the 31st of August 2021, but I mean. The easiest, you know, the the likeliest thing, if you were going to look on the horizon of what's going to happen as a result of this, is that Trump is reelected president and has a second term in 2024.
1: Well, he's he's going, uh, I think it's not that crazy. He's going to Iowa soon. That was just announced. Um, I'll be very curious to hear what Biden says this afternoon. He's supposed to have a a He's supposed to give a statement around one thirty about why two
0: forty five now.
1: Oh, it's now it's, of course, and yeah. soon there'll just be a lid and there'll be yeah. no statement. Yeah. Then. But there, but the I mean, he's he's it's like Groundhog Day with him trying to trying to figure out when he's going to speak. But he he claims he's going to explain why they didn't stay longer, uh, and and it's going to be his justification speech. But you know, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal the columnist Gerard uh, Baker had an interesting piece today where he revisited. How Biden introduced his foreign policy team and his foreign policy worldview right after he uh, took office, and it was a very domestically focused. It was focused on white supremacists. It was focused on yes, you know, America is back, and we our allies are so important. But but the actual foreign policy part was very vague. The specifics were all about domestic uh, threats, internal threats. And I think, you know, that, that was a gamble that they took at the time that is not going to pay off. And Trump will capitalize on that if he's able to. If, we, if there are hostages, American hostages being held by the Taliban when the presidential election of 2024 heats up, that will work only to Trump's advantage if he runs.
0: Okay, guys, uh, I need to talk to you about neutrophil. Because, uh, look, when it comes to thinning hair, you no longer have to choose between natural remedies and those that work. There's a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness without drugs or prescriptions. Nutrafol is clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage without compromise. 21 potent natural ingredients support better sleep and less stress, too. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months. Nutrafol is also trusted and recommended by 1,500 top doctors You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to NutraFold.com and entering promo code commentary to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off NutraFold.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code commentary. Um... So uh, we've, done, we've done a lot of ranting here, a lot of raving, and a lot of ranting and raving. Uh, I'm wondering whether we, uh, whether we're going to see, as I say, the Ross Dowsett line or something like that. We're we're going to see a an effort, a kind of a consensus develop that it was good what Biden did, and he did it badly. Uh, and uh, and and so we'll just have to see where things go now, right? Uh, and maybe he did it badly, but it'll be okay. Maybe he did it badly, and there'll be bad consequences, and we'll have to deal with them there. But you know, his heart was in the right place, and seventy percent of the country agrees with it. And da 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 da. da, da. So now it's just a, a matter of like like execution. And then I go back to Mark Schmitz and his son Jared. And uh, the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of military families uh, who uh, have, um, you know, committed, who's, who, who have members who committed themselves to the task of protecting and defending America after 9-11. And um, they are going to be some kind of a, an unorganized political force in this country in the wake of this. I don't know what, I don't know how. And again, this is the this is where things get interesting because you just don't you know, these are all bank shots. Nothing follows a linear pattern. That's why it's foolish for me to say Trump will be president in 2025 because things don't follow a linear pattern. Um uh but uh I I think the idea that uh something dishonorable happened here and that they they do not want to be complicit in the dishonor uh and that they don't want this you know that that uh, isolating it on biden and his team is in fact a way of saying no the country was not dishonorable politicians made dishonorable decisions that we are not we will simply not countenance or we are not going to allow ourselves to believe that what happened here happened for no reason
2: I Abe? think that's absolutely true, and that's going to be part of the pushback. I think the other is that we are probably much sooner than we realize going to start the, to feel the world become palpably more dangerous, and uh, in 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 the very ways that that sadly uh, we could have predicted, uh, we would have in such a case. We we have anointed the Taliban as uh, kings of the jihad, and what what's going to come of that? Nope. What's going to What's going yeah. to come of that um, is is impossible to predict in terms of um, specifics, but it's 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 certainly going to be uh, ramped up, ramped up um, uh, uh, fear and threats uh, to us, to our allies, and it's going to be visible and it's going to come soon. And um, I think that's going to that's going to change. Uh, if, if if Ross's take becomes the established take, I think that, that will change it well uh philip
0: larkin's poem was called homage uh, to a government and obviously was anything but uh, an homage to a government and you can pretty much say the same about today's podcast we'll be back to you tomorrow for abe christina noah i'm john Podhoritz. keep the candle burning